Hello all, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, if you're watching this in the morning, and welcome to the Goddess Project podcast. My name is Carla Ionescu, and I'm your host as always. If you're new to this podcast, welcome. Um, if you've been here for a while or since the beginning, hello, hello, hello. I'm very excited this week. We're going to be talking about surfs, and I find it super interesting that I put her on my list to do as a podcast when I made my lineup for season one. And then I ended up reading Madeline Miller's book, which I wasn't planning on, but couldn't find anything um, that I wanted to read. And so this one came along. I mean, I had planned on reading it. No, to be fair, I had planned on reading it at some point. I actually had it in my phone downloaded, but um I wasn't emotionally prepared. You know, she had killed me with the song of Achilles. And I thought, oh, my God, I have to be emotionally prepared for her work. Um, and I finished it in about a week or so because it was so great. And I really wanted to talk about Sirs from the beginning as a character that doesn't get enough credit. And I think Madeline Miller did a fantastic job. Um, bringing her into popular culture and bringing her into perhaps a readership that maybe wasn't looking at Cirs in the way that um, she comes off in this book. And she also gave her a fantastic ending, although um, Max Dashu and I might disagree. So if you know the uh, scholar Max Dashu, she is a fantastic, uh, a foundational scholar, I would say. Um, her work, uh, she, her website, I think it's called Suppressed Histories. Don't quote me. I'm sorry. I'm terrible with names, but you can find her just by Googling her. And um, I don't remember how we got into some kind of a Facebook conversation about books and about something to do with women and figurines. And, oh, I remember she posted a, um, a picture of Persephone with a torch and a snake. Anyways, and I had asked her we started talking about the torch and the snake and who carries torches and snakes. And I had asked her if she'd read uh, Circe, you know, since the torch is sort of Hecate's torch as well and the torch of witches anyways. And she did not like the ending. <laughs> she was like, oh, she just domesticated her and gave her a husband and a kid. And then I thought, yeah, actually, that's true. <laughs> so um, I really uh, admire Max a lot. Um, for all of her work and also for her abruptness in naming the things she does or does not like. Um, in historically speaking, Circe is an immortal. And as far as we know, she does not ever really settle, settle down. I say it in quotations. She does have children. Uh, I suppose she doesn't really have a husband. Um, and like I said, she's immortal. And so she goes on. Um, but and there are cults to Cirs, which we're going to talk about, but um, but it's fascinating. So I think that Madeline Miller has a different take on a lot of Cirs' relationships. So I'm not going to give away uh, anything that's not historically out there already. <laughs> so the fact that, you know, Cirs has children and that she uh, has some, some, some domesticity, um, that's sort of in the myth and in the stories and in the Odyssey and things like that. Uh, but the twist I think that Madeline Miller gives her, I think is really good. Um, 
anyways, I'm not going to ruin it for you if you haven't uh, read the book, but I am going to tell you the story. So I should really give you a heads up. So if you want to read the book and not know anything about what about the story of Sirs, uh, then this may not be the podcast for you. Or the time for this podcast may not be for you. Um, for me, I went in already knowing the history. And so this is why I was because the history is a bit open ended. Um, I was hesitant, you know, when you read the song of Achilles, you already kind of know what happens and you know how it ends. Um, and so I was prepared for that, but for Sirs, there is a lot of open-endedness and you could take it in many ways, her life. Um, I'm going to tell you some of the primary sources of her life and her, um, of the telling of her life and her story and all those things, but, um, you could really take it anywhere because she really, um, doesn't have an ending per se. And so, or even really a set narrative, um, there's sort of what's understood. And then there's all this side story that could be put in there, which I think historic, historical fiction writers are fantastic at doing, especially when they do their research, like Madeline Miller has. And so I, so I don't think it's going to ruin the book for you, but if you don't want to know anything, I will be talking about Odysseus and Circe. I'll be talking about um, Medea and Circe. Um, I'll be talking about Circe's other lovers as well and um, her children, things like that, right? So, uh, just, so just a heads up if you, ha- if you don't want to know anything. Um, and, but I will not be talking about the plot twists of the book at all. Um, And so that hopefully is fair enough. Yeah. For, for everyone who wants to continue, you know, I highly recommend, I know that, I know that uh, Max and I may disagree on some of the ways that the story took place and um, that's okay. That's perfectly wonderful actually. Um, and I think that there are people, when we're talking about historical fiction, there are people that disagree on the turns that authors take because authors do take liberties and that's their job. I really like the liberties that Madeline Miller took. Um, but I understand Max's head is hesitation. Yeah. Because Circe is such a powerful female figure and a witch figure, which is why this episode is titled Circe, the witch that could, because I think that she is a witch that survives, excuse me, survives everything, you know, survives, of course, numerous men, numerous generation, generations, uh, numerous biases against witches. So she is a survivor and, and her witchcraft. Hmm. Let me think about it, how to put this. Her witchcraft does not negatively impact her life. So let's begin at the beginning. Circe was a goddess of sorcery. In Greek, the word for that is pharmakeia, which is also sometimes associated with magic, but most importantly and fascinatingly is associated with pharmacy. That's where our word pharmacy comes from. And that word pharmacy or pharmaceutical also comes from a mixing of potions in a well, in a way, mixing of minerals and vitamins and herbs and all of that sort of thing uh, for the purpose of either healing or killing. Um, And so uh, 
this idea of pharmakia or sorcery or magic is deeply connected to source to uh, source. And of course, the Hecate, which I'm very excited to say we'll be talking about in season two. Um, but uh, source, I would say source is probably the second most famous witch or user um, of pharmakia next to Hecate. Um, and as we'll see, sometimes she's associated or called her daughter. Uh, Hecate is often referred to as um, Circe's mother. So Circe is the goddess of sorcery. She's skilled in magic. Transmutation, which is my favorite. And we're going to be talking a lot about transmutation, transformation, illusion, and necromancy. So necromancy is, of course, the raising of the dead. And so imagine the power that Circe holds. Okay, so transmutation, which is changing bodies, changing people into other things, changing humans, or changing actually one thing into another. That's really the definition of that. Um, and illusion and necromancy. I mean, it's the top, it's the trinity um, of witchcraft power. You know, no offense to white witches who are probably watching this podcast and saying, stop saying that about witches. Yeah. Um, as a side note, I got into a conversation with a friend of mine about witches, and we talked a lot about Sabrina, the teenage witch, uh, if you watch that show on Netflix, and uh, which I love the show. But one of the things that really irked me was this association with witches and, you know, Satan and this um, constant sort of flip of um, of wording and of everything. And so that was really a pet peeve. Like I was almost shouting at the TV every time that they said, you know, something that was very, you know, like hail Satan or oh my Satan or some stupid stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, I can go on about that forever. And so sometimes when I talk about witches and I use a lot of these sort of terminologies like necromancy and transmutation, which are, are the realm of witches, but I don't want, and the reason why I say white witches are probably yelling at me, I don't want the idea to be that witches, I don't want to propagate the stereotype that witches are all into uh, what we might consider today negative, bad, evil things. Um, and so, because I really like witches, in fact, I tend to lean towards witchcraft uh, nowadays more than ever. Um, as far as sort of a practice of healing and moon bathing and goddess bathing and all of these kinds of things are sort of coming up for me right now. And I, maybe that's why I'm relating to Circe in this way, because if you ask me as an undergrad about her, perhaps if you asked any academic, you know, 15 years ago as an undergrad or more um, about Circe, she really was uh, sort of ignored. Eh, I don't know if ignored, but just kind of put aside as, yeah, yeah, you know, the witch that seduces Odysseus for a year and doesn't let him go. And, and there's been a movement of a revival. And I'm caught up in that revival uh, because I really connect to her at this point in my life, perhaps. And, and it looks like a lot of other women and perhaps even men uh, or, you know, however you identify uh, are also connecting to source now 
Yeah. And perhaps it's because she's been brought forward, like I said, by this book, but also I think because we are, we have a different relationship with witchcraft, you know, I mean, we come out of the Harry Potter generation and we're, we're willing to understand that magic and pharmacia and sorcery and whatever you want to call it are not, not absolutes. They're not absolutely negative or absolutely sort of demonic or absolutes in some way. So that's very exciting. It's a very exciting time for witches, I think. Yeah. Uh, so Circe's names derives from the the Greek verb um, circo or kirko um, or kirku, meaning uh, to secure with rings or hoop around or circu. Yeah. A reference to the binding power of magic, right? So her name is connected to this idea of binding something. And when you transmute something, or even in necromancy, when you raise the dead, you, in theory, bind two things together or bind energies together or create some type of binding or hooping together. Um, and so that's where her name comes from. She had an island uh, in Aea, which was located in the far west, um, excuse me, near the earth encircling river Oceanus or Oceanus. Her brother Aetes, a realm is in the far east and was similarly named just Aea. So Circe is a mythical sorceress. Uh, Homer calls her fair locked, uh, that she had fair hair. So she, he calls her a fair locked goddess. He says that she's the daughter of Helios and the Oceanid Percy or Perse and sister of Aetes. Now it's really interesting because like I said, other people claim that she is also the daughter of Hecate and, uh, or she could be the daughter of Hecate. And in fact, Circe has a really interesting um, parentage, which actually we're going to talk about um, next. Actually, let's talk about that next. Let me move to the slides of parentage. Okay. So she lives in this island named Aea. Then later Odysseus comes and visits the island, which we're going to talk about that. Um, but her descent is different. Her descent, her ancestry is differently described by poets. Some call her the daughter of Hyperion and Aerope. That's Orpheus. Uh, others say that she is the daughter of Aetes and Hecate. And so the most commonly accepted origins or parentage of Circe is that she is the daughter of Helios and Percy. And her brother is a Aetes. But some people have said that she is the daughter of Aetes and Hecate. Now, according to Hesiod, she becomes the mother of Agrius, which is um, Odysseus' son. And she has two more children by him um, as well. Uh, the, the most famous one, of course, is Tele Telegonus or Telegonus. So where does she... Where does she come from? Yeah. Oh, sorry, we're on the parentage. I'm going to read to you a couple of primary sources. Circe, a goddess of braided hair. So this will become a theme over and over again. The fact that she braids her hair. Okay. With human speech. So this actually refers to the idea that she doesn't have the voice of the gods. Um, the gods have a voice that make you cower or that awe you, or that human human beings, when they hear the, the voice of God, 
you know, they have all these reactions. They go deaf, they fall on their knees, they start to cry, whatever. But she has a human voice. And in fact, that's one of the complaints against her by the gods that she sounds too much like humans. Uh, So that sets her aside, okay? So she has braided hair, human speech, strange powers, according to Homer. Uh, Baleful Aetes was her brother, and both were radiant Helios's, the sun god's children. Their mother is Perseus, Oceanus' daughter. Other sources say that the, Col- the Colchians, who were ruled by Aetes, the son of Helios and Perseus, and brother to Circe and Minos, wife of uh, Minos' wife, Pasiphae. 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 So this is another source that says not only is she the, the sister of Aetes, but also the sister of Pasiphae. And Pasiphae, if you don't know, is the mother of the Minotaur. She was married to King Minos of Crete, and she gave birth to the Minotaur. A later, um, a later translation says um, that Circe is Hecate's daughter okay, and that she is married to Aetes and has, I'm sorry, says that Hecate is married to Aetes and has two daughters, Circe and Medea. Okay. So I think as later, because Circe and Medea, as we'll talk about, are very interconnected. And Medea is also associated with sorcery, although in a much more negative and violent way. In fact, Medea is next for us. We're going to talk about her um, next week. And so Circe and Medea becomes, become associated in such a way almost that they, to some, they appear as sisters. And as we move forward into sort of Roman history and Roman writers, they often, Circe and Medea often are associated as sisters. And then their parents become, like I said, Hecates and Percy uh, and uh, Aetes. So her parentage is interesting, but needless to say, I do want to say that Circe's actually, uh, I made a note of her heritage, right? She is the granddaughter of four Titans. She's the niece to the moon and sunrise blessed by the golden rays of her father Helios. She doesn't have any of the enticements or goddess-given beauties by her nymph mother. So she doesn't have, she's not um, depicted as God-voiced. And often she's said to not be as beautiful or God, uh, have a God beauty. Although as we see others describe her, she is quite beautiful because she is still an, an immortal. So it's her voice really. And her ungodlike um, behavior. Yeah. She's often referred to, but the gods often refer to her of squawking like a bird. Yeah. Um, and there is sort of an, a Latinized form of the Greek Circe or Kirki, which uh, possibly used to mean bird, according to some scholars, uh, but that's a little bit unclear. So let's talk about her island. Okay. I call it an island, a garden, and beasties. This is one of my favorite image uh, of Circe. If you've ever seen, you've probably come across it. You know, she's walking around topless among lions and wolves. um, And she's on the stairs sort of weaving magic. It's one of my favorite images of her because really it's like a dream life in the sense that what woman doesn't want to be on her own island with nymphs? Okay. Sometimes. Uh, with lions as pets and wolves as pets and all the pets, all the animals are pets. She grows her garden. Um, you know, she spends her day creating herbs 
and you know drawing and of course weaving the daedalus does give her a, a, a special kind of uh what do you call it what do you got it it's not a helm the thing that you weave on <laughs> sorry i'm having a bit of a uh, a brain freeze right now but so she does do some weaving and she does do all of these things but she spends a lot of her time in the garden and she spends a lot of her time just chilling and you know hanging out with her animals and living her best life so her island of Aea so we're told by Hesiod that Circe comes to the island over and against uh, Tyrrhenia on the chariot of Helios. Okay. And he called it Hesperian because it lies towards the West. Okay. Other sources say, for example, uh, in the Argonautica, we have Aetes who addresses the Argonauts. And he says, I myself was whirled along in the chariot of my father, Helios, the son, when he took my sister Circe to the Western land. And we reach the coast of Tyrrhenia, Ty where she lives far, far indeed from Colchis. And then there's a, a Valerius Flaccus, which is another source uh, in the Argonautica 7. He talks about um, Circe was born away from the land of Colchis by winged dragons. Yeah, that's one of my favorite ones. So, um, and she's often talked about as a she dragon. Now, we talked about in the past how dragons and snakes kind of overlapped, sim overlap symbolically. And so, uh, she is sometimes associated with serpent or serpent-like figures. But in this case, a lot of the use of the word dracons or dragons comes up. And so she is carried by dragons. And sometimes she's referred to as a she-dragon. Yeah. So she's living her best life on this island. Um, I was going to talk about the book, but no. Uh, <laughs> I promised you I wouldn't. She's living her best life on this island. Her father takes her to this island and she has everything there. She has a palace. She has animals. Like I said, she has gardens. She's got everything. And the most fascinating thing about it all, I think, is that if she doesn't have anything or something, a thing, she learns how to transmute it, how to create it, right? She's a goddess of alchemy. She's a goddess, obviously, of sorcery, like we've talked about. And so she learns how to change things into the thing that she's missing or the thing that she needs. And so she's really a magical sort of independent, immortal, beautiful by human standards. Okay, the gods might not think she's fantastic, but every human recognizes her divinity or her deity. And so she's living her best life. She's living her best life. All right. So let's talk about her and Medea and the act of purging bloody crimes. So I thought that I would give you a little bit of the story uh, from Argonautica 4 um, because the depiction of it is so interesting. Um, and so I thought I'd read you a little bit uh, of this. So the Argonauts come to the famous haven of Aea. Yeah, came to the famous ha ha haven of Aea. Um, and they tie their boat to the shore. And here they find Circe bathing her head in salt water. So again, she's spending her days just bathing herself in the sea. Yeah. She had been terrified, Circe, by a nightmare in which she saw all the rooms and walls of her house streaming with blood and fire devouring, devouring all of the magic drugs with which she used to bewitch her visitors. But she managed to put out the red flames with the blood of a murdered man 
gathering it up in her hands, and so the horror passed. And then when the morning came, she rose from her bed, and now she was washing her hair and clothes in the sea, trying to wash away the nightmare uh, of the night before. A number of creatures were ill, whose ill-sorted limbs declared them to be neither man nor beast, had gathered around her like a great flock of sheep, following their shepherd from the fold. And so already by the time that Jason arrives there with Medea, she has already transformed or transmuted people, assumingly men, because those were her favorite to transmute, because they really were the ones to really threaten her peace. Oh, threaten her peace. And she changed them into half animal, half beasts. So already by the time Jason gets there, she has long been in the practice of transmutation. The Argonauts were dumbfounded by the scene. Okay. But a glance at Circe's form and eyes convinced them all that she was the sister of Aedes. So even though she's said to not have her mother's beauty, whatever that means, she does look just like her brother, which then makes no sense of why her brother is seen as this beautiful, stunning, godly man, but she's not supposed to be. Anyways. As soon as she had dismissed the fears and then engendered by her dream, Cersei set out for home. But as she left, she invited the young men to come with her, beckoning them in her own seductive way. Yeah. Jason told them all to take no notice. So they stayed where they were, where they were. But he himself decided and he took Medea with him that they would go to her house or her palace. I prefer to call it a palace, but OK. Cersei at a loss to know why they'd come invited them to sit in chairs and without a word, but without a word, they made for the hearth and sat down there after the manner of suppliants in distress. Medea hid her face in her hands. Jason fixed in the ground his great hilted sword with which he had killed Absyrtus. And neither of them looked her in the face. So she knew something was wrong. Okay, so she knew there were fugitives with murder on their hands and took the course laid down by Zeus, the god of suppliance, I always think supplicants, but suppliance, who heartedly abhors the killing of a man, unless he's doing it, and yet as heartedly befriends the killer. (laughs) So she sets about the rites by which uh, a ruthless slayer is absolved when he seeks asylum at the hearth. Okay, so this is a practice or a ritual that she's already quite familiar with. And of course, so are Jason and Medea. First to atone for the unexpiated murder, she took a suckling pig from a sow with dugs still swollen after littering. Okay. Holding it over them, she cuts his throat and let the blood fall on their hands. Next, she appropriated Zeus with other libations, calling on him as the cleanser who listens to a murderer's prayers with friendly ears. Then her attendants, the naiads and nymphs who did her housework, carried all the refuse out of doors. But she herself stayed by the hearth, burning cakes and other wineless offerings with prayers to Zeus. In homes, in hopes that she might cause the loathsome Erinnes or the Furies that we talked about last week to relent. Remember that the Furies or the Erinnes are chasing any type of family murder. And of course, Medea and Jason had just murdered uh, their family member. And so um, she and so she she prays and hopes that uh, they are forgiven. When all was done, she raises up, seats them in polished chairs and takes them, takes a seat nearby where she could watch their faces. And she begins to ask them to tell her what brought them overseas and then what port they went to and why they sought asylum at her hearth, all of this stuff. 
Horrible memories of her dream come back to her as she wondered what was coming, and she waited eagerly to hear a king's woman, king's woman's voice as soon as the girl had looked up from the ground and noticed her eyes. For the children of Helios were easy to recognize, even from a distance, by their flashing eyes, which shot out rays of golden light. So she recognizes that Medea is a family member to her. Medea, daughter of Aetes, the black-hearted king, answered all her aunt's questions, so that's her niece, speaking quietly in the Colchian tongue. She told her of the quest and voyage of the Argonauts, of their stern ordeal, and how she herself had been induced to sin by her unhappy sister and had fled from her father's tyranny with precious sons. But she said nothing of the murder of Absyrtos. Not that Circe was deceived. Nevertheless, she felt some pity for her weeping niece. Poor girl, she says, you have indeed contrived yourself a shameful and unhappy homecoming, for I am sure you will not long be able to escape your father's wrath. The wrongs you have done are intolerable, and soon he will be in Hellas to avenge his son's murder. However, since you are my suppliant and kinswoman, I will not add to your afflictions now that you are here, but I do demand that you should leave my house. You that have linked yourself to this foreigner, whoever he may be, this man of mystery, whom you have chosen without your father's consent. And do not kneel to me at my hurt, for I never will approve your conduct and your disgraceful flight. Medea's grief when she heard this was more than she could bear. She drew her robe across her eyes and waited till Jason took her by the hand and let her out of doors, shivering with fear. Thus they left Circe's house. So I find that story really interesting because of two reasons. Number one, Circe's ability to purge the bloody crime. Okay. And so she has divine authority and recognition by Zeus to purge the crime. Second, she purges their crime because they come sit at the hearth. So it's part of that sort of hosting, right? This famous hosting ritual. And she recognizes, of course, that they've committed this crime and they're asking for this forgiveness. And she does so without hearing the details of the crime. And in fact, when reading this story, she never hears the details of the crime. And so in many ways, Circe is the... cleanser, the, the, the salvation, the, the tool through which to gain salvation, uh, which is really fascinating for these two. And because she purges their crimes, they are able then to move on freely. So the Furies are no longer after them. They don't carry the blood debt or the family debt uh, of killing a family member. And so they then are free to go on their way. So Cersei's a really fascinating figure already in the Argonaut story because she's already done something that is unique, of course, to the gods, but unique in the sense that she really didn't ask them for anything in return for this ritual. And she really didn't question them other than, of course, telling Medea, what you've done is wrong. This is not going to end well for you. And I really don't want you to be in my space. Yeah. You bring in your bad energy into my good energy island. And I spent a lot of time building the positive energy. And even before you came here, I had this horrible nightmare. So your bad vibes are bleeding into my good vibes. And so I want you to go away now and take your bad vibes with you. But I have absolved you of your sins. Okay. And I have purged you of the blood on your hands. So go and be happy. Yeah. We all know, of course, that, or maybe you don't know yet, we'll save that for next week, that Medea doesn't end up too happy. Uh, but um, 
that has nothing to do with certs. Yeah. So as we'll see, one of the one of Cer Cersei's favorite pastimes is turning men into beasts. And it is unclear from the primary source, at least, why she enjoys turning men into beasts. I mean, one can only imagine. But before, like I said, before the Argonauts get there and before Odysseus get there and, you know, her reputation precedes her, which means in a way that at least some of the sailors that arrived on her island that were not turned into beasts lived to tell the tale and told the tale to other people. Um, the fact, so again, one of the things that I found really fascinating about this is that here we have another female divinity that turns men into something. So remember, we looked at Medusa who turns men into stone. Um, and in this way, Circe decides to turn them into beasts. Now, most famously, we have turning men into pigs, which ironically remains um, sort of a uh, joke or a, I don't know, a stereotype of men. Is that right? You know, that all men are pigs or that men are pigs or some men are pigs or whatever. Um, so it's kind of interesting that that terminology lasts into today. Um, but as we'll see, some of her transformations are more fantastical than that. And my favorite part is that some of her transformations are actually part transformations, uh, which means that the, the individual, the man is either half beast, half man. So lower body turns into beast, upper body stays man, or most off, more often than not, the upper body is turned into a beast so that they're not able to voice or speak. Um, and the lower body are like the, the hands and feet remain human. So some really fascinating transmutation here that happens here. And in fact, one of my notes actually in my notes was to talk about this idea of uh, women who transform or witches who transform men. And so, you know, fairy tales like Beauty and the Beast, right? And in the beast is transformed into half beast. The upper half of him is a beast, although he does still maintain his speaking abilities. And the bottom half of him is kind of like human anthropomorph anthropomorphized. Um, and so that was a witch's curse um, or men that turn into frogs or men that turn into mice or whatever. And in fact, even in Harry Potter, now that I think of it, uh, put one, I can't remember the spell. You, you guys probably remember them more than me, but you can transform a person into um, a human, a, a human into an animal. <laughs> so if any of you know that spell's name off the top of your head, please put it in the comments uh, or send it to me because it's going to bug me Yeah, until I look it up. Uh, so there is this just transformation and this tradition of transformation that harkens back to Cersei as being sort of the originator of all of that uh, category of shifting, particularly uh, for men. Yeah, turning men into hideous animals is a pastime of witches. Certainly they're accused of doing that um, for the last, you know, 3,000 years. We come to Circe and Odysseus. Now, the story time for Circe and Odysseus is so long, okay, because the story is so long that Homer tells, um, that I thought that I would just tell you um, a little bit of, just a little bit. I'm going to summarize this story for you guys with some pertinent um, aspects of it because uh, we might be here way too long. Yeah. So Odysseus also lands 
um, on the island, of course. And also her, like I said, her reputation precedes her. And the interesting thing about uh, the way that Homer describes her, he says that Odysseus comes to the island of Aea, where Circe dwelt, a goddess with braided hair, human speech, and strange powers. Yeah. And of course, it you know Homer mentions again the parents, which is Aetes, uh, who was seen as a magician. Interestingly, not a sorcerer, but anyways. And Helios is her father, and her mother's Percy. Yeah, and um. We're told that Odysseus lands there and kind of sits on the beach for a while. And then uh, dawn comes, you know, a couple of days, three days later. And he says, listen, we got to do something. We're just kind of sitting here. Let's split up into two groups. One group will stay here and the other group will go um, and see the goddess Circe. Okay. So <laughs> uh, he says, I divided my crew into two companies and gave each its leader. I myself, captain one. And then uh, Eurylochus, 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 the other. Uh, and then they drew lots, okay? And Eurylochus was the one chosen to go. So Odysseus sits back on his boat while his comrade and half his group go to see Circe, okay? And so when this group gets there, this is when we see the description. So Outside the palace were lions and mountain wolves that she had herself bewitched by giving them magic drugs, or so these men thought. The beast did not set upon my men. This is Odysseus speaking. They reared up instead and fawned on them with their long tails, okay, as dogs will fawn around a, ma a, ma a master when he comes home. Okay. Then there were lions, wolves. Okay. Everybody was circling along around his comrades. The sight of these strange creatures scared his people. Yeah. And then they saw the goddess with the braided hair. She was singing with her beautiful voice and she moved to and fro as though she was dancing in a delicate, gleaming, delectable, delectable goddess dance. Okay. Uh, she was singing her song and blah, blah, blah. Okay. And then they try and speak to her. They call out and make themselves heard, or they try to call out and make themselves heard. The goddess ushers them in, gives them all seats, gives them food, wine, blah, blah, blah. And then, yeah, all these things she had mingled with pernicious drugs to make them forget their own court country utterly. Okay? And then she strikes them with her wand. So another fascinating aspect here is that she has a wand. Yeah? She has a wand. And she strikes them with her wand and they begin to turn. Okay. They turn from men to swine, the snout and grunt and bristles. Only their minds were left unchanged. So this really is the stuff of nightmares because you are now have become an animal with a human mind. Then they started crying, right? She puts them in a, in a pig pen. They started crying. Um, and she's giving them some corn and some uh, acorns, daily food for shrine. But the leader, the team captain, uh, Eurylochus, didn't drink the wine and wasn't turned. So he was able to return back to the ship and talk about the, their dismal fate. Okay. And so he comes back and he returned. He tells the story. And of course, all the men that are back at the ship are frightened. And then Odysseus says, listen, I need to go. I need to save the men. I can't just be sitting here. 
Um, and as he's getting ready, his men are like, don't go, don't go. As he's getting ready, Hermes comes down and Hermes speaks to him and tells him what to do. He says, so Odysseus says, Hermes came down to me and sees my hand. And he said, luckless man, lol, why are you walking alone over these hills in the country you do not know? Your comrades are over there in Kirky's ground. They're turned to swine, lodged and safely penned in the sights. Yeah. As your errand to rescue them? I warn you, you will never return yourself. You will only be left with the others there. Yet, no, I am ready to save you from all the hazards, ready to keep you unscathed. Look, here is a herb of magic virtue. Take it and enter Circe's house with it. Then the day of then then the day of evil never will touch your head. I will tell you of all the witch's arts. She will brew a potion for you, but with good things, she'll also mangle some drugs. Yet even so, she will not be able to enchant you because my gift of magic herb will thwart, will thwart her. I will tell you the rest pin by point by point. When she strikes you with her long wand that she has, draw the keen sword from beside your thigh, push upon it and push upon her and make it as if you're going to kill her. She will shrink back and then ask you to sleep with her. Okay. At this, you must let her have her way. She is a goddess, accept her bed so that she may release your comrades and make you her cherished guests. But first, make her swear to the great oath of the blessed ones by the river Styx to plot no mischief to you thenceforward. If not, while you lie naked there, she may rob you of courage and of your manhood. I mean, so basically, go into her house. Okay, you have this thing that you, it's going to protect you from the herb. Drink her wine, eat her food, blah, blah. As she goes to turn you, she won't. Then put the sword at her neck as though you're about to kill her and she will ask you to have sex with her. I sigh in Homer. But okay. So Odysseus does all of this. Yeah. He goes in. All of this comes to pass. So I'm going through the story much quicker. All of this comes to pass. He sits down. Da, da, da. He eats. He drinks. But um, he doesn't uh, fall prey to her to her to her spell. And then she recognizes him as him. She says, you must surely be the man of the wide ranging spirit, Odysseus himself, the radiant one at which I lulled the radiant one of the golden one of Hermes. Hermes has told me of you. Uh, he always said that Odysseus would come to me on his way from Troy in his dark and rapid vessel. Okay. So now it's, then she says, okay, enough of this. She's your sword and let us go to bed together. Yeah. So she, it, everything pans out exactly as Hermes says. But as she spoke this, Odysseus answered her, Sirs, how can you ask me to show you gentleness in this very house you've turned my comrades into swine? And now that you have me here also, you ask me in your treacher treacherousness to enter your room and lie with you. So he basically asks her for a vow that if I do have sex with you, you will return my men to themselves and you need to swear this by the river Styx. And so she does. She says, I will do this. If you have sex with me, I will turn your your uh, your comrades back and I will not turn you into anything. So they go and they have sex and it's wonderful. And then, you know, the nymphs come around and they wash him and they bathe him and he sits down and eats and all this kind of stuff. Okay. Um, and he's sitting there eating and he's unhappy. So Circe asks Odysseus, why do you sit there tongue tied eating your heart out, not touching your food or drink? Can it be that you fear some further treachery? I mean, I gave you my word. And he says, well, sirs, what man of righteous thoughts could bring himself to taste the food or drink before winning liberty? 
for his friends and seeing the men before his eyes. So he basically says, I don't really want to eat and enjoy your company and do all of these things until you change my men back and they should be changed now. So Cerse goes out in the hall. She flungs the doors open. She sets the men back into their human selves and they're super happy and they hug Odysseus and he's the hero and blah, blah, blah. And she goes even one step further. And she goes, I know you've got men on the ship. Why don't you ask them to come in? I already swore that I'm not going to hurt anybody. Um, and so go and get the rest of your men and let's all stay here and enjoy ourselves. And Odysseus does that. He goes back to the ship. And of course, you can imagine that Eurylochus, who was originally there, is saying, what is this nonsense? Uh, you don't believe her. So he doubts, you know, Odysseus. And then him and Odysseus almost have a little brawl over it because Odysseus is a man with a big ego. Anyways, and uh, and they all eventually go and uh, they stay with her. And she tells them that they're safe and all of these things. Um, and then they decide to stay for a year. Um, they decide to stay for a year and spend basically a year in her island with her food, in her palace, with her animals and her wine and all that stuff. Okay. Um, so, I mean, in many ways, uh, Homer makes it seem as though she traps them on this island for a year, but frankly, it doesn't seem to be much of an entrapment. And certainly it seems like if it is an entrapment, it's certainly a very luxurious one. Okay. Um, and so then uh, after a year has passed, Odysseus says, um, he's, they're sitting in bed one, one morning, one night, et cetera. And he says, uh, sirs, you gave me once your promise to help me home. Uh, and the time has come to make it good. My own desire is set in that way. And the desire of my comrades also, they are there around me, vexing my heart with their lamentation when once you yourself are out of sight. So they're always asking me to go home. Um, and, uh, and it's time for me to go home. So she says, okay, you can go home. But then first you have to go to Hades and there's this whole scene where Odysseus has to go to Hades and she tells him what to do. Sorry, he has to go to the underworld and he has to survive that. And at first he's very frightened by it, but then he's like, okay, fine, I'll go do it. Um, it is right there as he's getting ready to go to uh, Hades that one of his friends falls off the roof of the house, uh, Elpinor, and he dies. But anyway, that's a, that's a bit of a side note. Um, and then he goes to the underworld right? He goes and he follows what she says and he returns. Yeah. And, uh, they arrive back on her Island. Yeah. And she sees them right away and she comes and again, she feeds them. She gives them lots of meat and bread and all this kind of things. And then she starts warning. She goes, okay, now, so now you're ready to go home. So I'm going to warn you about a couple of things. So she warns them about the sirens and she warns them about Scylla. And about Charybdis uh, or Charybdis, sorry, Charybdis. And she tells him all of this. And she tells him, of course, about Helios's cows. She basically plans his entire journey and how he's going to survive it. So like literally step by step, point by point. So you're going to reach here and you're going to do this and you're going to get through it like this. And if you follow this advice and if you do A, B and C, you'll be fine. And then from there, you're going to go here. And if you do A, B and C, you'll be fine. So she does this for him, all of this for him. Um, and before he leaves, yeah, some of it he does listen to, but with Helios cows, he doesn't really uh, 
He doesn't really listen to her. Um, so this is the day that he leaves. He says, scarcely had she ended her words when the dawn appeared in her flowery cloth of gold. Then queenly Circe took her way, took her way back across the island. Dawn, sorry. I went to my ship and told my comrades to go abroad and lose the hawsers. They embarked forthwith, sat at the thwarts and grouped in order, dipped their oars in the whitening sea. And Circe of the braided tresses, the goddess of awesome powers and of human speech, sent the best of comrades after our dark power vessel, our following breeze to fill our sails. So she sent her wind friends. We made fast the tackling everywhere, then seated ourselves while wind and helmsmen bore the ship forward on her course. Then with heavy heart, I spoke to my comrades thus. Friends, it is not right that only one man or only two should know the divine decrees that Lady Circe has uttered to me. So all the things she told me, I will tell you of them so that in full knowledge we may die or in full knowledge escape, it may be from death and doom. So he then tells, of course, his comrades as he leaves and they move forward. So the story of Circe and Odysseus is an interesting one. It is interesting because it, of course, portrays the transformation that we talked about of the men at first. But it is interesting because there certainly doesn't seem to be any entrapment. Odysseus certainly seems to be sitting there willingly. And then she has him do these heroic deeds, for example, going to the underworld and bringing uh, and, and speaking to those that are in the underworld. And he does see some of the, the, the Greeks that died. He actually sees Agamemnon and realizes that Agamemnon was killed by Clytemnestra uh, when he got home. Um, and Achilles, and he sees lots of people there. And so, and then he comes back to the island and then he's told, you know, he, he's given a plan. And so in many ways, Circe plays a key role in Odysseus getting home. Uh, yes, okay, she takes away a year from him. I mean, Calypso takes away seven later, but um, Circe really, like Circe really has zero, it seems to me she has zero uh, malevolence towards him, uh, his men, eh, eh. but towards him, um, she certainly is treating him in the same ways as the others until she realizes that he's Odysseus. And then uh, she asks him to stay. So very, very interesting um, understanding of Sirs. Um, But when you read the primary text, you kind of get to see that she's really just helping him out. And he is kind of willingly, I think, staying there uh, for a year, but you may feel differently. <laughs> Perhaps you may feel that he's trapped there for some you know, enjoying the luxuries of a beautiful woman in her palace. Um, speaking of transformation, Aeschylus actually, Aeschylus, the playwright, the Greek playwright, wrote a play called Circe. Of course, the lost play. Uh, but one of the most awesome parts of that tragedy is that Aeschylus um, had the satyrs in the play. So in the story, she has the story of Circe, which is the story of Circe and Odysseus uh, and the encounter. But uh, there's a vase painting actually that's um, from the fifth uh, from the fifth century BCE that suggests that Odysseus's half transformed animal men uh, formed the cho the chorus in place of the usual satyrs, and so there's this really fascinating and people in the ancient world were really fascinated again with this concept of transmutation or transformation. So I promised you that Circe had children uh, by Odysseus. Let me just go back here. So during their union, Circe and Odysseus brought about the creation of three sons. Now, it is unclear how Circe can have three sons in one year, but okay. Agrius, Latinus, and of course, Telegonus. Telegonus. 
all of whom would become famous like their father. However, it is Telegonus, the youngest, who would become the ill-fated offspring that kills his father. Um, of course, ironic, ironically, it fulfills Odysseus' fate, um, a, a foreshadowed story that he'd been warned of years before. Perhaps it was divine punishment. Perhaps it was just fate. Um, but uh, it is Telegonus. So here are some, where's my notes? Some of the stories uh, around the children and the death of Odysseus, right? Circe, Hesiod says, Circe, the daughter of Helios, yeah, uh, loved Odysseus, of course, and, bear, and bared for him Agrius, Latinus, and of course, Telegonus. Now, both of them were faultless and strong, okay? And Telegonus was brought forward by the will of golden Aphrodite, and they ruled over the famous Tyrrhenians very far off in the races of the Holy Land. So that's Hesiod's story. And then Telegonus is later told by Eugamon of Serene, for example, that when he learned that his mistake, which was he accidentally killed his father, he transports his father's body with Penelope and Telemachus, Telemachus being Odysseus's son with Penelope's, to his mother's island where Circe makes them immortal. And Telegonus marries Penelope and Telemachus Circe. So um, in a weird, in a weird way, uh, Eugamon of Serene tells us that after his own son kills him, uh, Telegonus brings Penelope, which is like his stepmother, okay, and Telemachus, which is his stepbrother, to the island of Circe. And Telegonus marries Penelope, and Telemachus marries Circe. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, Opian later on in 3rd century CE. Uh, explains to us that actually Circe had tipped the arrow um, of, or the, sorry, the hilted spear of Telegonus in the poison of a stingray. And so that was just because she wanted to give him a defense in case somebody attacked him. Yeah. And so his long spear was, was filled with poison. And so in case he did have some kind of attack, he could survive. And he beached his ship on the island of pastured goats in Ithaca, where Odysseus was. And he knew not that he was harrying the flocks of his own father. So he didn't know that he was out there with the flocks of his father. And on his aged sire who came to the rescue. So Odysseus thinks somebody's taking his, well, somebody is trying to take a few of his sheep or a few of his flocks. And he comes down and he's angry and he attacks Telegonus for taking some of his sheep. And Telegonus stabs him with the poisoned spear, um, neither of them knowing who the other is. And of course, Odysseus passes away. So there, the cunning Odysseus, who had passed through countless woes of the sea in his laborious, laborious adventures, the grievous stingray poison killed him with one blow. So a bit of a tragic end for Odysseus, you know. I'm not a fan of his very much. Um, I don't know if anyone is a fan of him, perhaps in the old days, uh, but still a weird way to go after such a long and tedious and violent and historical life um, killed by his own son. But this does not technically count as patricide because neither know each other. Um, and so the Furies then are not after Telegonus. And we are told that he ends up actually marrying his father's widow, which is um, 
Penelope. Yeah, so there's a bit of an interesting relationship there. Now, Cersei does have a few lovers that uh, I'm not sure that we're often told about. Uh, one of them, of course, are people she falls in love with or people she loves. Uh, one of them is Calchas. So Calchas um, is uh, a Dawnian, and he was greatly in love with her. Uh, the same one from which to which Odysseus came, so the same Cersei. He handed over to her his kinship over the Downians and employed all possible blandishments to gain her love. But she felt a passion for Odysseus, who was then with her, and loathed Calchas, okay, and forbade him to land on her island. However, he would not stop coming and could talk of nothing but Cersei, and she, being extremely angry with him, laid a snare for him and had no sooner invited him into her palace, but she set before him a table covered with all manner of dainties. Of course, the meats and everything was full of magical drugs. And as soon as Calchas ate of them, he was stricken mad and she drove him into the pigsties. After a certain time, though, the Downians army landed on the island to look for Calchas. And then she released him from the enchantment, first binding him by oath that he would never set foot on the island again, either to woo her or for any other purpose. So while Odysseus is there, there is a story of Calchas who shows up and he's falling in love with her and he's obsessed with her. And he's stalking her. Um, and so she turns him into um, a pig for a while, but then she has to turn him back and make him swear not to come back. Another lover, that another person that uh, she falls in love with, um, of course, we've talked about, um, no, sorry, we haven't talked about Picus. So Picus is a king, King Picus. Um, and this comes from a story of someone who had been one of the men that were on Odysseus's boat, okay? And um, one of the nymphs that was there, he had spent a year with Circe, and one of the nymphs told him this story. So he says that this nymph points out to me one day while Circe dallied with my lord Odysseus, a statue of a youth in a snow-white marble set in a shrine and gaily garlanded with many wreaths who bore upon his head a woodpecker. So he asks, okay, who is this guy and why uh, worshipped in the shrine and why is the bird upon his head? So the, um, the, the nymph says, I'll tell you the story. Yeah, this is, the, this is P King Picus, San, son of Saturnus. Okay. He ruled this island, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he was very beautiful and he was very good looking. I'm summarizing him. Yeah. And Picus left home one day to hunt some boars and roam the countryside and all this kind of stuff. And the same woods that, of course, Circe was also roaming. So they came upon each other. Yeah. And she, Circe, saw the king and was gay and was dazed and entranced by him. Yeah. So entranced that she let the herbs fall out of her hand like blazing fire. A thrill of ecstasy raised through her veins. That's how beautiful King Picus was. And then um, she tried to chase him down, but she could not come to him because he rode so fast to take, get away from her and uh, close his, get back to his friends. So she says, you will not escape. No, though the wind will whirl you away. If I still know myself, if I still know my spells, their magic power will retain and I will make some herbs that will make sure that you stay here. Um, and then she tricks him. She like, long story short, she tricks him um, into um, thinking that he sees this wild boar um, and then he follows this wild boar and he loses his guards and he loses everybody around him and he becomes totally, so she creates an illusion and becomes totally entranced by her. Um, 
And then she tries to say, you know, um, you have beautiful eyes. You've captured my, my eyes with your beauty. You're the loveliest of kings. Um, it makes me here a goddess kneel to you, favor my passion ex and accept as yours my father who sees all um, and stay with me. I want you to stay with me. Um, I want you to never go away. I'm in love with you, blah, blah. But fiercely, he repulses her and her plea. And he says, be whoever you are, but I am not yours. Someone else holds my heart. And many a year I pray shall hold it for a long time. Never will I wound for any strangers love my loyalty while fate keeps me, keeps my Canaanin, 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 Jenny, Jenny, Jenna safe for me. That's a good name. Anyway, she pleads with him and he says, no, blah, blah, blah. Um, and eventually she decides, okay, well, if you're not going to stay by your own will, then I'm going to make you into a bird. So she transmutes him into a bird. Okay. And of course, we have a little bit of a depiction of him being terrified of seeing himself turn into a bird in the same way that Scylla was terrified of seeing herself turn into a half monster. And then just like... Uh, um, Oh my goodness, I forgot his name. Uh, but just like the uh, just like other stories we've heard in the past, <laughs> um, his comrades come to look for him, but they can't find him because, of course, he's a bird, and nobody can find him, and nobody knows where he is. And even his wife, his very very sad wife, um, stands. Actually, she stands there. Apparently, we're told on the shore of her country or her village or town, watching. Uh, with a heart in vain as she waits for her, watching with eyes and a heart in vain as she waits for her husband. However, nobody comes, nobody knows where she is. Um, and in fact, his wife becomes so mad with grief, she rushes herself uh, and roams the countryside of Latium, eventually wasting away and mourning. So Cirrus has a few lovers and she doesn't like the answer. No, uh, we've seen her wrath when Glaucus uh, denies her his love and uh, he says, no, I'm not, I'm not in love with you. I'm in love with Scylla. And that's how poor Scylla uh, becomes the monster that we talked about that she becomes. So Cersei is in this way made to be very, very possessive, made to be very um, demanding and you don't say no um, to, um, to Cersei. Okay, so let's talk just briefly about her magic spells, all of the ways that she's described uh, as having magic spells. So like we've talked about how she's the uh, inventress of magic and spells, yeah? And she's said to invoke uh, daemona or spirit magic. So that's, that's that pharmacaea of herbs and healing and potions and vitamins and things. But she is also said to use sometimes a demonic spirit. Yeah. Remember that demons are just spirits. They're neither negative nor positive. So they're just based on the witch's intention. Okay. Uh, Homer does describe her, of course, as Circe the witch uh, who casts cruel spells, hurt men and all their handiwork. So that's one. Uh, Lycophron, for example, describes her as um, she, a beast molding Dracana or a she dragon uh, who molds, who 
who mixes the drugs with her meal and beast shaping doom that leads to beast shaping doom. So again, there's this concept of pharmacia, which is the drugs being mixed. And also this concept of transformation or transmutation, which has a lot to do with the use of spirit. Pausanias also talks about her a little bit. Um, he says that um, there are some scenes on a chest that he finds uh, in Sipsilus, which were dedicated at Olympia. Um, and there is, we are told that there is a grotto and in it, a woman is sleeping with a man upon a couch. Um, and people say that these are Odysseus and Circe, you know, resting together forever. Um, and that handmaidens will go there and offer offerings uh, in this cave. Um, and so there's this long tradition of Circe long after we're, you know, she's supposed to have been with Odysseus. I mean, yes, meant with Odysseus. Um, and then there's this idea that she also creates these potions. She uses this plant, Molly, for example, of which Homer speaks. This plant was said to grow to be grown from the blood of the gigante or the giant killed on the Isle of Circe. It was a white flower. And the alley of Circe who killed the giant was her father, Helios. The combat was hard. Um, and um, Helios was able to win this fight against the giant because Circe had given him... Um, this molly plant uh, or this molly molly blah, blah, blah. no i'm telling that story wrong i'm sorry once helios had killed this giant the blood of the giant grew the molly plant and Circe uses that plant um to create potions okay so historically speaking there are a couple of cults of um Source. Uh, there are a couple of places uh, where we're told that their people practiced during this is, of course, during the um, first century BCE. Um, so, for example, Strabo says that here off the coast of Attica, there are Pharmacusae, which islands, uh, two, small, uh, two small islands on the one of the larger of which is to be seen or to be found the tomb of Source. Now, tomb is usually uh, a shrine and a shrine that's offered to a hero's cult. So there are a couple of islands in which uh, people worship the goddess. Another one that we're told also by Strabo is that uh, Circaem, for example, in Italy is a mountain which has the form of an island because it's surrounded by sea and marshes. They further say that Circaem is a place that abounds in medicinal roots, perhaps because they associated with the myth of Circe. It has a little city and a temple of Circe and an altar to Athena. And people, people there will show you a sort of bowl, which they say belonged to Odysseus. So there's a few uh, places in um, around the islands of Greece, and of course, Rome or Italy, sorry, Italy, uh, where there have been some small temples or small mentions of, of Circe. And so um, it's interesting that she has this little bit of a cult, um, even during the sort of Greco-Roman Hellenistic period. Fast forward to today. Um, so lastly, I'd like to talk to her about her a little bit in, um, in popular culture. So we've talked about the book Circe uh, by Madeline Miller at the beginning of this podcast. And if you haven't read it, please, please go do uh, read it if you're interested in historical fiction, because you really have to be into it 
Um, for me, historical fiction is more fun because I know the story. And so when someone retells a story in a fantastical way, I don't know, it's quite fascinating as long as they get the details right. And uh, Madeline Miller certainly does. She does, certainly did her homework. The other really fascinating connection to Cersei is, of course, uh, Cersei of Game of Thrones. And Cersei of Game of Thrones is very much the, in, the traditional embodiment of Cersei. Uh, she's not so much a witch per se, in the sense that she doesn't have her own powers of transmutation, certainly, uh, but she does know her way around poisons. And she certainly knows her way around manipulating men uh, and certainly never regards them as equal. Um, I was going to say other than her brother, but even then never really regards them as equal. Is constantly using them as a pawn in her play. Um, if you watch Game of Thrones, then you totally know what I'm talking about in this. And if you, even if you don't watch it, but you know who Cersei is, she is a very modern figure that is influenced, I think, by the concept of Cersei, um, without, like I said, the witchy powers. Um, and my favorite thing I think about Cersei, especially if you read the books, um, if you read the books, the books are pretty awesome. I would say 100% better than the film, but uh, than the show. But um, if you read the books, you really see the duality of this character. And there are moments when you really can't stand her. And that's the same in the show. And then there are moments when you really start to understand her. So um, really beautifully written, but I think very much that sort of complexity complexity of women and men, but the complexity of humans, but complexity of this character and of this individual. Um, and then I've just learned uh, there is a source in the DC universe. So um, if you don't, if you're not watching this on YouTube and you want to look up source in the DC universe, there is a powerful figure, superhero, um, villainous, however you want to look at her, uh, of source in the DC universe, which is awesome. It's not actually something that I know, even though I do enjoy comic books, uh, but I'm, you know, I'm not, I guess, as well versed as I thought I was because I'd never seen Cersei before. Um, and so, again, she has made it into um, popular culture fantastically. And my favorite thing about the DC universe is that she has red hair, because like we talked about previously, uh, for a long time, witches were seen as having red hair or anybody with red hair was seen as possibly being a, a witch or uh, born from a witch or that kind of thing. Um, and so DC Universe uh, obviously uses this uh, old relic of a red hair assumption. Yeah? So Cersei continues uh, to fascinate us and continues to uh, be a story that we are revisiting. I guess in some ways, I think Madeline Miller does an amazing job at filling in the gap. In some ways, one of the sad parts about Cirrus is that in some ways we have a lot of detail, but we don't have enough detail. And so we have a story, but the story is detailed enough that people, I don't think for a long time, felt the need to really add to it. They, they sort of read it and thought, okay, this is who she is. And I think that now 
we are starting to revisit that as we're starting to re revisit many villainesses and many goddesses um, and ask ourselves, is there more to the story uh, and what has been left out? Um, and so I hope that you find her as fascinating a figure um, as, uh, as I found her. Um, we really didn't have the time to talk about the ways in which witchcraft operates uh, throughout, let's say, the last three, four or five thousand years, um, because that would take an entire season. Um, but I want to leave you with this idea of this concept of perspective. And of course, you know what perspective is, but this concept that the way that we think about witches today has been so deeply, purposely indoctrinated by Western Christian thought that we find it very difficult to let go of that perspective and create a new, our own perspective which is that someone who may have, let's say, magical powers, and I say that in quotation in the sense of may use energies or vibrations or potions or healing or whatever it is that they have, or, you know, they, they, they're, they're prophetic or they, they're psychic or, you know, et cetera. And that the tool itself, the magic itself, the sorcery itself is neither good nor evil. Um, but it's the person that's, of course, using that, that, that defines the purpose of that magic. Um, and I just say that in closing, because I know that we come out of a Harry Potter world. And so there are a lot of people out there that are like, of course, magic is awesome. Um, and that's wonderful, but there is still a lot of backlash. Um, and for a long time, practicing witches had to hide, of course, and, uh, and Wiccans, you know, for a long time, they called themselves Wiccans, not so much witches in order to sort of avoid the negativity that came with the word witches and the stereotypes. And I think that now they're taking back that word witch, and they're embracing those traditions. And all of those traditions are earth based, which is, of course, why Cers is such a gardener, right? I mean, she's a gardener and a farmer. I mean, those are really her foundational tools, right? She's raising animals and she's raising crops. And so, um, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that, except uh, I just want us to maybe adjust our perspective so that we can freely use the word witch without all of the negative connotations. Um, yeah, so if anything, I hope that this podcast has... Um, showing you a couple of different aspects of both Circe and also um, witchery. And I also hope that you enjoy the stories, um, the ancient stories, uh, which I think is still fascinating. I saw something today that said, um, why are ancient stories still so fascinating? And uh, I think that might be a whole podcast. Um, you know, why, why are we so fascinated with myth? And there's so much to say about that, but I think it's a good question. So I'm going to leave you on that with that question. You know, why are we so fascinated with myth? It's not just entertainment. There is something deeper for us 
there is a, a passion, a pull that we all feel and we want to talk about it and we want to share about it. And we almost privately wish that we could really believe in it in the way that the ancients did, you know, uh, perhaps there's answers there. Perhaps we're looking for answers. Um, and there are people who do truly and faithfully believe. And I think more and more people are waking up to that faith. Um, but again, it's a fascinating question. Anyways, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. Please like, subscribe, share, follow. Um, if you're on Spotify, please hit that five-star review. If you really like this podcast, um, it helps a lot. And uh, please feel free to leave me your comments or DM me uh, on Instagram or wherever. If you have any questions or any thoughts about this or anything comes to mind that, um, that you want to discuss, I'm here always to talk about uh, goddesses and ancient history. All right. Have a great day. I'll see you next week for Medea. Thank you again for being here. Goodbye.